you guys have your Bibles, you turn to Matthew chapter 7, or if you have your programs, if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, we'll be continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, we'll look at verse 13, and we'll go all the way to verse 20. So this is Jesus, he is preaching to the crowds, and this is Sermon on the Mount, and starting in verse 13, we actually see Jesus kind of going to the tail end of the sermon, and he, uh, he says, starting in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is a reading of God's word. I've been jokingly telling, just jokingly, uh, telling people, uh, apologizing beforehand that today's sermon is not going to be very good. Uh, it's not because it's a hard passage to study. It's not because I was uh, busy this past week. Uh, I was binging this past week. Stranger Things, the series finale is out. And every episode is like two hours long. And I just had to watch it. It's so good. Uh, I'm just joking about it being bad, the sermon. But, uh, you know, I was, uh, it's because, you know, the, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, you know, Stranger Things, uh, the, there's season four. And the first, they did a thing where the first half of that season is released, and the first half was amazing. Like, it was so good that at least I appreciate it. And the second half, there's like two more, it's just two episodes, and they're like long episodes that are coming out. And I'm really looking forward to it because the entire series, you just know they're building up to those two last episodes. I have not seen it yet. Please, no spoilers. I will not offer spoilers. But I just know uh, from what I heard that the Duffer Brothers, who created this, uh, they're going to bring it. Because they want to, you know, that's, that's what a TV show does. It's not about the, the beginning, it's not about the middle, but how do you end the show? How do you end the, the season? That's what matters, the finale that's there. And you want to end it on this high note. So uh, I look forward to watching uh, that last episode. And the reason why I bring that up is because we're at the end here, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, he preached, this is known as the most famous uh, sermon that's ever been given. Um, and it's all about the kingdom, and it's meant to be challenging followers of Jesus, and after uh, us going through this for 13 weeks, uh, it's about to come to an end. The sermon's at the, the last part. And interesting enough, just like Stranger Things, we have two more episodes to go through today and next week, and then the sermon series is done. And you would expect for Jesus, if he was to end this famous sermon, that after saying everything he has about the kingdom, that he might end with like this inspiring story to kind of motivate us to follow what Jesus says, or he might give, and here are three practical ways that you live out the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus does not end the sermon this way. Instead, he ends on what feels like a low note. He goes, after you heard all this, now let me warn you. He gives a bunch of warnings. He would fail a preaching class in seminary, because you're not supposed to end a sermon this way. Um, it's all warnings. He's first saying, if you don't listen to what I just said, everything I just said, just know these are some things you should be aware of. And so this final section of the Sermon on the Mount, he's kind of done talking about the kingdom, and now he's kind of exhorting followers, and he begins this final section giving with an illustration. Uh, in verse 13 to 14, look at the illustration Jesus gives again. He says, uh, enter by the narrow gate, 
for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus pretty much says, hey, there's, uh, he gives an illustration saying there's two roads to life. There are two roads. The first road is what he calls the narrow road, and he, it's pretty much the way of the kingdom. Uh, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, he's saying the Sermon on the Mount. To live this out, it's really hard. What I just told you, this whole past 13 weeks, Jesus is pretty much saying it's really hard to live this out, but if you live this out, it leads to not heaven, although that's true. He doesn't say heaven. He doesn't say it leads to God, although that's true. It does lead to God, but look at the terminology he uses. Verse 14, it leads to life. Interesting terminology. He's pretty much saying everything I just described to you, this is how human beings are meant to live. This is, you're meant to flourish this way. And if you follow these instructions, if you follow what I just said, you will experience true flourishing, true life. But it's hard. Versus the other way, which he describes as the wide road, this is the way of the world. It's very easy. It comes very naturally. It's, you don't have to try. You just do this every single day. Just wake up. But he says in verse 13, where did it lead to? Destruction. It's why so many of us experience brokenness. Why some of us feel experience hurt and pain. Because this is the way the world tends to be. And Jesus, he says, all of us are on one of these roads. Whether you know it or not, you are on one of these roads. And next week in our series finale, we're going to talk about how do you know which road you're on? How do you know which road you are on in these, between these two roads? But today, we're going to talk about something else that Jesus brings up, which is this. Who are you trusting to guide you on the road? What voices are shaping and influencing your life? Because that often determines which road you are on. Because there are a lot of voices out there, both outside the church and inside the church. And it's shaping our view of family, of politics, of work, and of money. And what Jesus talks about here is he gives a warning, saying, but do you realize there are something what he calls false prophets out there? Voices that influence us in a way that's contrary to the kingdom. And you know you are going down the wrong path when you feel further and further away from Jesus and you look less and less like him. Whereas Jesus invites us, you have to draw closer to him and you have to follow those voices there. And so what we're going to be having today is a warning passage. So it's not going to be the most uplifting passage, but hopefully a sobering passage for us. And Jesus then talked about this idea of false prophets, false teachers in three ways. Number one, the reality of false prophets. The reality that there are false prophets that we should be aware of. Secondly, the identity of false prophets. How should we know what false prophets look like? And lastly, our response to false prophets. How should we respond knowing that there are false prophets? The reality, the identity, and our response. And I hope this message, um, I hope it's relevant for those of us who may not, who are exploring the church, and you, know, you hear about all these crazy stories about churches and pastors and so forth and abuses. Just know, I hope this, this past, this, today's message could minister to you. And even if you're inside a church, I hope it could minister to us. And I hope that uh, this could just really be both something that's uh, a warning, but also healing if that's something that we ever grapple or wrestle with. And so, um, and again, I, and I warned our AV person, if it, if it starts going crazy, just don't record this. <laughs> this will be a safe space for us inside who pretend like you just didn't get the audio, uh, but let the spirit lead today. So first, the reality of uh, false prophets. Um, 
you know, recently, because of all the news that's been happening with like the shootings and so forth, uh, we, we actually have like a, a safety protocol in our church, just none of you know about it. And so, but we do have a safety protocol. And I actually recently talked to a, a person who's kind of put that together and we're like, hey, we should really like let the church know what our safety protocol is so that we could feel uh, safe and know that when we gather, there's a, there's a plan, there's an idea that we have. You just don't know who might be out there and who could come and could try to bring physical harm. And so we should like watch out for that, right? Uh, Jesus, he's saying, hey, you got to watch out for something else too. There's not just people who will come to the church to want to bring physical harm to y'all, but there's people who might come who bring spiritual harm. That's the, the warning that Jesus is giving here. And that's why Jesus says in verse 15, look what he says again. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Let's break down what Jesus means by this. Uh, prophets, uh, the Greek word is prophetos, and this is, uh, it's, it's literally uh, somebody who speaks for God. If that sounds too religious for you, we go, what does that mean? It's somebody who points us to reality. It's someone who describes to you, this is how you should live your life. This is the good life. That's uh, kind of what a prophet functions as. But Jesus, he doesn't just use the word prophetess, but he, it's, a, it's one word, false prophets, it's pseudo-prophetess. The word pseudo, which is false. A pseudo-prophet, in other words, which is somebody who may not be completely all wrong, that's like everything wrong he's saying, but ultimately he's pointing you to the wrong direction. It's a distorted reality that he's pointing you to. And when Jesus says, there's people like that out there, and Jesus says, and beware. He says, watch out for that. It's not just like beware, it's like beware, like look, be on the lookout for that. Uh, and Jesus, what's interesting is in the Gospel of Matthew, that word beware, he uses it six times in the Gospel of Matthew. And every single time Jesus uses that word beware, where he says, watch out for this, it's always about spiritual leaders. It's always about people who are prophets. Now, why is Jesus kind of worked up about this? Why does Jesus, to, after that beautiful sermon he gives, he goes, now watch out for false prophets, why does he say that? It, just know it's not just this hobby horse that Jesus is into. Uh, it's actually a major theme in the Bible. If you read through the Bible, you'll know that this is actually something that the Bible talks a lot about. For example, in the Old Testament, Israel, there is always this constant warning that Israel as a nation, be ready for this, be ready for this, but also watch out for false prophets. Deuteronomy chapter 13, for example, it writes this. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Very important. It's in the book of the law. Or Jeremiah in chapter 14, verse 14. This is what Jeremiah says. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name that I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision. And that's just a small dosage of multiple passages in the Old Testament. And a lot of us think, well, that's the Old Testament. They had a bunch of dreamers and people who had these visions and so forth. That was the ancient people. But the New Testament, same thing. In the early church, you see this constant warning about false teachers. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. First John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is something that's just there. That's a reality that's in the Bible that talks about saying, hey, watch out for this. And when many of us hear these warnings, I don't know about you, but all of us just like, okay, sounds good. I guess I'll watch out. Because... And we kind of have that attitude where we're not really alarmed. And the reason why is because for a lot of us, our idea of a false prophet, uh, it's a caricature. We have a caricature in mind. We think of like a cult leader or something like that. Um, and we don't run into many cult leaders. Uh, you guys ever watched that documentary, Wild Wild Country? It's on Netflix. You guys don't remember that name. Remember the, the Bagwan? 
This guy named Jacob. If you guys don't want to talk about the bad one here, he is this guy, he's this mystic guru from, from uh, Asia, and he came to America, and he gave like these teachings and these philosophies, and people were drawn to him. He had them all move into a compound where they all lived together. They all started wearing the same clothes. And you're like, oh my gosh, and this is kind of crazy. We found out later it's like a sex cult, and it's like wild, and the documentary talks about how wild it is, hence wild, wild country. And uh, the, pretty much when we hear that, we go, okay, Jesus, you're telling me to watch out for the bad one. Got it. I'll make sure that I'll watch out for cult leaders because they're dangerous. And again, while the reality of that is there, we don't really sense like that's going to happen to us. We don't sense that's a big problem. And again, if we find a bad one coming here, it's like, oh, you're clearly crazy. So this doesn't really set up alarms. And yet, why is Jesus so adamant about this? Why does the Bible keep telling us about this? Is the Bible naive? Do the Bible think we're naive about this? And I think the key actually comes in verse 15 of how Jesus describes the false prophets. He says that beware of false prophets because they come to you, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus is talking to a bunch of farmers, so he, there's a strong imagery here. Wolves, farmers know, are dangerous predators that could cause a lot of damage to their, their farmland. What happens is if you just have a, see a wolf there, it's easy to spot. Bagwan, you just shoot it or you kill it, and it's easy to spot. But if it's wearing what he calls sheep's clothing, they're not easy to spot. And that's why... When Jesus is warning us about false prophets, he's not talking about cult leaders, the bad ones. We could spot those people a mile away. They are actually going to come in more socially acceptable forms to us. Podcasters, psychologists, social influencers, pastors. That's who Jesus is talking about. And it's hard to spot. It's hard to find. And so when Jesus says, beware of false prophets, there are at least two implications for our church that I could encourage us to take away. One is this, for the, for the context of outside the church, are we aware of the prophetic voices in the world that's shaping us? Are we aware of that? Uh, nobody's going around outside right now saying they're a prophet, but they're functioning as prophets because they're pretty much saying this is reality. This is how you should view life. And all of us, we're consuming that. We're on our podcast. We are watching YouTube. We're on TikTok, we see social influencers, and they are shaping our idea of how to understand money, how to understand savings, investment, relationships, sexuality, and they're not all wrong. Doesn't, it's not like this, hey, watch out for the world type of thing, but at the same time, they're not all right. They're not all just good or healthy. And oftentimes, because if we're not discerning about that, then most of our views, even if we say, I'm a follower of Jesus, it looks a lot more like social media and like the world than it does like a follower of Jesus. This was never more evident than when the serious stuff starts happening, right? Like when George Floyd and all the racial strife started happening, or when the mass shootings started happening and people were talking about like gun legislations and so forth, or Roe v. Wade, when that started happening and I hear all these people talk about women's rights or the unborn rights or so forth. So many people post stuff and it's so interesting where I know exactly who you're talking about. I know exactly who you listen to. You listen to Joe Rogan. You're listening to Jordan Peterson. You're listening to MSNBC. You are parroting or echoing the left or the right, the blue or the red. And we are so, the reason why we echo that is because our, our lives are shaped far more by the prophetic voices out in the world than it is the prophetic voice of Jesus. And that's why you look, you, your opinions are oftentimes the way it is. I like what Tim Keller says in this interview with The Atlantic where he talks about Christians and he says this quote, most Christians, we are just nowhere nearly as deeply immersed in the scripture and in theology 
as they are in their, most, in their respective social media bubbles and newsfeed bubbles. To be honest, I think the woke evangelicals, they're just much more influenced by MSNBC and liberal Twitter. The conservative Christians, they are much more influenced by Fox News and their particular loops. And they're both living in those things eight to 10 hours a day. And then they go to church once a week and they're just not immersed in the kind of biblical theological study that would nuance that stuff. And isn't that true of us? One hour, not even one hour, if it was an hour, none of y'all come back. <laughs> literally like 35 minutes of a sermon, of hearing, that's the only time you hear a prophetic word from Jesus no surprise that your view of Roe v. Wade, of gun rights, of race, is going to be shaped by the media outlets that you're listening to throughout the week. Which again, that's fine, but as a follower of Jesus, how much of your opinions are shaped more by the prophetic word of Christ versus the prophetic words that are being shaped around you? And this is where we have to really question ourselves going, well, where, what, what are the prophetic voices that are influencing me? And even more importantly, how do we do this? Now what's troubling is, there's no verse that tells us gun rights, what, should do, what we should view it as, or Roe v. Wade. There's no verse that really explicitly says that. But one thing that I've mentioned many times before is one thing we, uh, that helps in, to understand that is regular communion with God. Regular communion with God just shapes and well, you, helps you understand what God thinks. One way I always joke about this is I know when I watch Stranger Things, I'm like, my wife is not going to like this show. It's scary. It's filled with demon stuff. She's not going to like it. And I never even asked her about it. I just know she ain't going to like it. She ain't going to like this restaurant that I go to. I just know. She doesn't know this restaurant exists, but I just know. Because why? Not because I asked her about it, because I just know her voice. I, I talk to her all the time. And for us, if we are not regularly in the word as Christians, you won't know what God thinks about the unborn or about women's rights. You'll know what Joe Rogan thinks about it. You'll know what Nancy Pelosi thinks about it. But as a follower of Christ, do you know what Jesus would think about it? You have to be familiar with his voice. And that's why a lot of us, we look much more like the world than we do like a disciple. And that's going to be one implication for us is outside of church, which prophetic voice are shaping us? But here's the second thing. Inside the church, inside the church, are we aware of the reality of false prophets who could be in here. And this is actually going to be the focus of the rest of the message, because I think this is the focus that Jesus is mainly pushing for. Uh, Jesus, he warns about false prophets, and you know, there's false prophets all in the world, but that's just the world, man. Like, what can you do? But in the church, in the community of God, that's something where we could do something about it, because we're part of the community of God. And Jesus, he talks about when they come to you, this is the, the main thrust of this part, when they come to you, watch out for that. Because if Jesus' words are true reality, where Jesus is describing what life is supposed to look like, and leaders and pastors and teachers are supposed to teach and proclaim this, what happens if that gets corrupted? We're screwed. We're, we're confused. And it happens all the time. There's a book that, I've been, that I read before. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church. Uh, and pretty much with the author, he's a counselor, he's, his whole uh, premise is that, you know, one of the most, there's narcissistic personalities, and narcissists, they're like, you know, life is all about me. Uh, you know what the most, one of the most appealing jobs it is for them to have and pursue? It's to be a pastor. It's to be a pastor. Because when you're, when you're a pastor or a Christian leader, you're in a position of power or influence. You're talking to people like this every single Sunday. Uh, if we wanted you to vote for Nancy Pelosi or whoever or their policies, you know, we tell you this is what God says. And you kind of have that agenda or so forth. And it's used to like kind of puff you up a bit. 
And that's why, you know, one thing that he mentions is you know, there's a lot of broken people out in the world. They, they should be doing the hard work of therapy, but instead they go to seminary. Instead of therapy, they end up in seminary. And as a result is, we just trust that, well, if they're a pastor and they're studying God's word, they should be legit. But the congregation, they trust them and they're spiritualized, they trust them. And then a lot of you today, you're messed up. Some of you, you've had messed up pastors and church leaders in your life, and it jacked you. And some of you, you left your church, and you can't even understand it. You just thought that, you know, you were, your God was condemning you because this pastor or leader is condemning you. So you just kind of left, and or now you're back, and you're kind of a shell of yourself. Or you feel like you don't really trust Christian leaders anymore because you're just kind of scarred. And that's the reality. Because we don't, we don't recognize that this happens, that Jesus kind of warns us about this. And it just messes us up. It messes us up. So that leads to the question, where, what do we do about this? Like, how do we know if there are false prophets or teachers, especially in the church? Uh, if, there's, if, it's, if Joe Rogan messes up or says something weird, it's like, well, that's, that's okay, I guess he's weird. But in, inside the church, there's like bad things that really happen. Bad things that really happen. And so we have to kind of be aware and know, like, well, how do we identify this? And that leads to the second point, the identification of false prophets. How do you know if there's a false prophet out there in the church, in a church setting? How do you know if someone's a wolf in sheep's uh, clothing? Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, if, I, if I've heard, like, hey, uh, Tom might be a false prophet, I'll really pay attention to the sermon, right? Like, what's he saying? Let's listen to all his the sermon podcasts from the past few weeks. Because you expect a false teacher to be like, you know what, you know the Trinity? It's not real. The Christians were lying to you this whole time. Or, hey, I have a new discovery. Jesus, he wasn't fully God. The deity of Jesus is fully off. Or, hey, let's make, you know, let's, 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 let's just have sex with whoever you want. If I say crazy stuff like that, it's like, ah, that's a false prophet. Mm, we found him. We think it's that, that easy, right? Uh, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say pay attention to his words. Although that's, if I say stuff like that, then, you know, I'm probably a false prophet. But if, that's not what Jesus says. What did Jesus say is the test of how to find a false prophet? Verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. You recognize them by their fruits. Pretty much Jesus is saying, don't look at their teaching, look at their lives. Look at their lives. This is why Jesus, throughout this whole passage, you notice one word he mentions over and over again about false prophets? Fruits. It's on the slide right here. Fruit, 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 fruit. Look for the fruit. Look for the fruit. Look for the fruit. If you want to know if he's legit or not legit, look at the fruit. Look at their life. Look at their life. Look at their life. In fact, the words deceive you. Don't trust the orthodoxy of their words or their doctrine. That is what deceives you. Dr. Diane Lingberg, she talks about this. I love this quote where she says, quote, the test of a prophet is not found in the prophet's words, but in his life. False teachers look like sheep and behave like wolves. Their accurate or orthodox words are the sheep's clothing. A superb and brilliant preacher, theologically orthodox, but who bullies, is rude and dismissive, is lacking fruit. Jesus says, beware of such people. Don't beware of the liberal crazy pastors shooting crazy stuff. Beware of the most orthodox, faithful, biblical, godliest preacher in the world, and their lives are crazy. That's who Jesus is saying is to be careful of, because we don't often suspect those folks. It's summertime right now, and then because it's summertime, it's fruit season. And we always, I, I always love getting fruit and eating fruit, and our family eats fruit, and one of my favorite fruits is watermelon. Uh, but you know if you go to the market and you just grab a watermelon, you made a big mistake. Because you don't know if it's going to be good. It might be dry, it might not be sweet, there might be, it might just be like a, a really gross texture. 
So you guys know the test, right? You're supposed to test like if it's a good watermelon. And I know there's a bunch of tests out there, but the two that I know of is one, you have to knock it and you have to hear something. I don't know what you're supposed to hear, but you hear something to see if it's ripe. And then two, you have to look for those yellow spots to, sh to see if it's ripe, the yellow spots on the watermelons. And those are the test of if it's a good watermelon. Well, when it comes to a, a prophet or a teacher or a church leader, there's also a similar test that we need to do to see is the fruit they're producing good. And there's two tests, just like a watermelon. Here's test number one, proximity. Proximity. Do you know up close what this person is like? That's why Jesus, in verse 16, you notice how specific he gets when he talks about thorn bushes and thistles and so forth? It's because he's talking to farmers. And, and they all know what Jesus is talking about because thorn bushes, back in the day, they would produce these fruits that look like grapes, but they're like those berries that you see in front of your house and those bushes that are absolutely useless that, you, that your kids want to eat, but you go, don't eat that. Like that's, that's what those are. And from afar, if you're just far away, you go, oh, that looks like grapes. But if you, only, if you stand afar, you won't know until you get closer, going, oh, that's not grapes. Those are those nasty berries that my kids will die if they eat. Or same thing with thistles. Thistles, if you look at from far away, you go, oh, is that a fig? But as you get closer, you go, oh, it's actually a flower. It's not edible. But you can only know if you draw close. And Jesus is saying that's the kind of proximity you need to really know if a prophet, if a teacher, a Christian leader, if they're legit. Is anyone close to them? Is anyone close to them? And the reason why this matters so much is every human being, every human being, we all have three sides to us. There are three sides of every human being. The first side that we all have is our public side. This is what we choose to show you. You know, a lot of you, you follow me on Instagram and you see my stories and you think you know me. You don't know me. You know what I want to show you. You know the part that I want you to see. It's my persona. It's, I mean, I try to be genuine. It's not like I'm like faking things, but... I'm, I'm never going to post embarrassing things about myself or my failures. Like, I'm not going to show that. I'm going to show, like, my successes and the things that are good because that's the public side of myself. But there's a second side of everybody, which is our private side. And this is the part where we don't just publicly show people. We reveal this to people. We choose people to reveal our private side. That's usually with our spouses, our close friends. It takes revealing, and we all have that. But then there's also deep down a third side our secret side. We show this to nobody. Nobody sees this, not even our spouses. But it leaks. It leaks. And you have to be close enough to that person to really catch that. Now, what's interesting is that uh, while the public side matters, the most important part, the part of the truest part of ourselves, it's our private and secret side. But what does the whole congregation see from church leaders? It's the public side. All of us, we just see each other's public side. Like, we don't look like this. This isn't what you look like. We, are put up, we put up stuff. We're not this nice. We don't say hello like naturally like this. It's because we're all here. Same thing with me. But it's when you get close that you really get to know somebody. And this is why a common theme that's really oftentimes there that is when a church leader or pastor, when they fall, you find out nobody really knows them. It matters less what the congregation thinks. Like when I hear like this pastor, this preacher, this person, he's amazing. If they're a congregation member, like, oh, you, you, it's, his public site's amazing. Tell me what his staff thinks about him. What does his staff think? I want to know what his kids think about him, what his wife thinks about him. I want to know if he has any friends. What does his friends think about him? Does he have any friends? Or his friends only a year long? They don't have any historic friends? Like, what's going on? Because that's a true test, is do people know this person? Is the fruit legit? 
But secondly, you don't just need proximity. The second test is time. You need time. Jesus mentions the tree. There are healthy trees, and they bear good fruit, and there are diseased trees that bear bad fruit. And if it's diseased, he says in verse 19, it's thrown into the fire. But you cannot tell if a tree is healthy or diseased unless you give it time. If you buy a tree, you go, where's the fruit? There's no fruit. Oh, you toss it away too quick. Fruit takes time to develop. Versus another tree, if you get it, all this fruit comes, you go, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing tree. I'm going to call people and tell them this is the most amazing tree. You have no idea how deep the roots are. It could just be that one harvest, and it just dies right afterwards. It takes time to understand and, and evaluate the fruit. And in a similar way, the, for a prophet, for a teacher, for a church leader, what matters is not the early years, it's the later years. Anyone can find a girl or guy, not anyone, most people could find a girl or guy and get married. Okay? If you just lower your standards, you will find somebody and make a marriage work. It, it's, it happens. Most people can do that. What most people cannot do or struggle to do is maintain that marriage, to make it healthy. I, I don't, when, when married couples post about their marriages in their first year, going, we love each other. Like, uh, you know, one side of me is happy for them, and the other side I'm skeptical. I'm like, well, give it 10 years. Give it 10 years and let's see. Because anyone could start something easily, but what's the health of the marriage 10 years later? That's, what kind of, that's where the fruit really matters. Same with ministry. Same with church. It's easy to grow a church with loudness and hype and be prophetic. But the true quality is, well, what's the sustainability of it? I, I used to like, get really excited when I saw new church plants being started and new ministries. I think, wow, we should learn from those guys. But now when I see that, I'm like, well, we'll see. When I see churches that are like 20 years old and they're just sustaining, I'm like, hmm, I want to learn from those guys. I want to learn from those guys. And so the implication of this for us is if, you don't, if we're not careful with the proximity or the time or judging fruit, a lot of damage gets done. A lot of damage gets done. And it's different from like the voices outside of church. Because again, outside of voice, we don't know them. They influence us, but we don't know them. But inside of church, when you trust people to guide you and to spiritually nurture and mentor you, it's damaging. It's very damaging. And the way it manifests most often, it tends to be a, abusive behavior. Uh, just to put on our radar, there are three general ways that church leaders can damage a congregation that we should be aware of. That Just to put language to things that we might hear or experience, there are three general ways or three uh, general abuses that are out there. Uh, and I want to just lay them out so that we're aware of it and it's on our radar. The first one is what I call doctrinal abuse. Doctrinal abuse. This is the, our idea of false teachers, where if someone is super liberal, saying, you know, no trinity, the miracles aren't real, hell is not real, and so forth, that's a real thing that happens. Uh, it distorts your understanding of who Jesus is and how to follow him, so it's messed up, it's not good. Um, by the way, a funny note is we're only worried about the liberal pastors about this. Like, if you're too liberal, they're false teachers. You know conservatives could go crazy, too? You know those conservatives, they get too conservative? Jesus, the main people he critiqued in the Bible were actually the conservative leaders who were too conservative and too crazy. And yet for the modern church, we don't really have a category for that. We just think they're biblical. But no, you could go crazy either way. And that's doctrinal abuse, where you lead somebody and tell them a distorted view of who Jesus is. Happens very rare, though. I would say it's very rare that stuff like this happens, although it happens. Here's something that happens more often that just breaks my heart. And, if you hear, and the stuff that we hear about in the news all the time, which is criminal abuse. Criminal abuse. These are church leaders who embezzle money or sexually assault members in the church, and it's devastating because you entrust leaders to care for the souls of your people when they're taking advantage of that. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC, 
Uh, one thing was our church, we're like, hmm, should we ever join the SBC? After we heard recently, it's like, yeah, probably not. <laughs> like the stuff that's going on out of there. There were uh, a list of Southern Baptist pastors that were sexually abusing or were assaulting members or at least had an incident like that. And the SBC knew about this. But instead of reporting it, they just had a hidden list. So there's 700 Baptist pastors. You can look up online. There's a list, and you see their mugshots, and they're all there. And they're all still pastoring. They're all still pastoring. Can you imagine if you're a victim of that? Or if you're a victim of any type of sexual assault, and you know that there are people at the pulpit preaching about the love of God, and yet they have this history. It is a devastating thing for victims, and a horrible witness to the church, and yet most people, they try to protect that because they don't want to damage their reputation of the church. So bad. It's horrible. And just know, um, I, I tell this to people in our church, in our church here, um, if somebody gets accused of sexual inappropriate relationships, for example, like with like kids or so forth, there ain't going to be no prayer meetings. There's not going to be some three-month investigation. We call the cops right then and there, and we bring them down because that's the role of the government. That's not a church discipline issue. That's a criminal issue when stuff like that happens. And that's what churches need to do. But we're afraid to do that because the reputation of church could get tarnished. And so, but those are, that's the reality. There are things like that that happens. Doctrinal abuse happens, rare. Criminal abuse, very loud, but also kind of rare, to be honest. It's kind of rare. Here's a third category of abuse that actually is very prevalent. We just don't know about it. It's spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse. It's a form of abuse that's illegal. Not illegal, it's not illegal, but it's immoral. It's really wrong. And it's when a spiritual leader misuses their spiritual authority to jack people, to hurt people for their own purposes. And it's so damaging because you trust somebody to lead you, to represent God for you, and that just jacks up your view of God when you experience this type of abuse that's there. Um, a couple examples of this. I know of a member of a church where they wanted to leave the church. They're like, you know, it's just not a good fit for my family here. I think we should leave. And so, you know, not the best reason to leave, but also, you know, not a bad reason. And they went to the pastor saying, hey, I think our family, we're actually going to go to a different church because it's just not a good fit. And the pastor responded to them going, you know, I talked to God about this. And God told me you should stay. God told me you should stay. Do you know how confusing that is? So, well, we don't want to disobey God. And, the pastor, and he's a pastor and he's telling me this. I guess we should stay. That's abusive. That's abusive. You are using God's name to do something that you want this couple to do, which is not to leave. That's not good. I know a sister, a girl, she didn't know what to do with her life. She was a, she was a social major or something in college. She said, what do I do at the social major? And she didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. And so what she decided, she wanted to meet a pastor. And she said, hey, like, what do you do? I'm like confused. I'm in my 20s. What should I do with my life? And the pastor's like, you know, uh, I think you should be a missionary. I really feel God's, con I've been actually thinking about you. And I feel like God was calling you to be a missionary. And she was like, I never even thought about that. He's like, I know, this is how God works. And he talked about this mission plans and so forth. And the sister's like, okay, I guess I'll be a missionary out in East Asia, planning to this trip. It didn't work out. Later on, super disillusioned because she found out that the pastor, he actually was trying to start a mission program in his church. And she'd be a great guinea pig to go and send out. And it's like, dude, you're about to uproot this person's life for the sake of your church that looks really godly. But in reality, you just want this good thing to happen for your church. Messing up this person's life. And it all looks good. I know a pastor, he would plagiarize all of his sermons. He listened to John Piper and just plagiarized it. And there'd be a staff member who's like, I heard this sermon before from John Piper. <laughs> and he would talk to him and be like, hey, man, did you plagiarize the sermon? 
pastor confesses, and he's like, you know, I just had a hard season. I couldn't prepare well. I'll confess to the elders. Later on, the pastor, the staff member gets called in, thinking he'll, you know, kind of back up what he said, the, the, the evidence, and the elders, they said, why are you being insubordinate to the lead pastor? And they fired him. And what can you do? There's no HR in church. There's no one who's going to get your back. The lead pastor says, hey, this is what happened, and everyone just trusts them. Because we, we're not aware. We just trust that people are going to be okay. And it's devastating. It's, it's disillusioning. And it's really hard to make sense of that if you experience stuff like that. And so when leaders, when they mess up in the church, it's rarely doctrinal. It's oftentimes behavioral, which is why Jesus says, pay attention to the fruit. Pay attention to the fruit. Now, to our members here, I'm aware of how ironic it is that I am talking about this as a lead pastor. Uh, And I'm not saying, and therefore, I'm clean of this stuff. I have every capability of going crazy. I'm a fallen person, I'm a sinner, and in the right conditions, I might actually turn crazy. You never know. And guess what? I'll be shocked if the way I turn crazy is if I have a different view of the Trinity. That'd be a shocking way to go. I'd be like, well, I never guessed that. That my view of the Trinity is the one that got me off, that I just shifted, or my view of Jesus just shifted. What most likely happened with me is I will be stressed out, and it'll cause me to be like raging with anger, or if I get, if I need, if I have a control issue, or if I'm going through stuff, and uh, or I just start changing. That's the stuff that's going to happen that could really derail us. And it's really important, therefore, that one people are. I'm in relationship with people. That's why I told Pastor Sam we are going to be in community groups. We're not this separate pastoral thing on a high tower. We're amongst the people. The people have to know us. That's why for members, especially the Constitution and those policies that were so boring that we went through, this is what it's for. It's to make sure that, hey, we're, we, know, we have a protocol of what to do if you go crazy. <laughs> we have a protocol. <laughs> this is why we need elders. This is one of the first main agendas for our church is, hey, we need elders in the church to be in proximity with the leaders. This is why y'all need to be willing to fire me. Members, you should be willing to, you know, this isn't good. Not fire me right away, but, you know, it takes time. Takes time. Fruit takes time. Why are you willing to fire me if I do crazy stuff? Do you care enough to fire me? And especially, do you care enough to pray for me, to pray for your leaders, to pray for the spiritual leaders that are here? It takes a community, not just the pastor's strong will or his godliness. It takes a church to cultivate strong, healthy leaders. Paul Tripp, he's a counselor. I love what he says. He says it like this quote It is my experience as I have dealt with fallen or lapsed pastors. That around them was a weak or dysfunctional community that failed in pastoral love and care to protect that leader for himself. Every leader's ministry is a community project. Every leader needs the ministry of other leaders in order to grow to the kind of maturity that will allow him to lead well over the long term and end well. And you know what the main thing the community just needs to do? We just need to care. We just need to care. It's not like these legal policies we have to know or how to disciple. We just need to care. Hey, how are you doing? Am I praying? I'm praying for people here. That's what we need. And that's what it means to be a member. And so we pay attention to the fruit. And so in light of all of this, in light of the idea of there's false prophets out there, they are seen by their fruit, what should our responses be? And I'll end with this. Um, Let me exhort three things just to put on our radar as a church uh, in response to what Jesus is saying here. Number one is we need to be a church that's not silent, but our advocates. We're a church of advocates. For those who get hurt, for those who suffer, for those who struggle, 
you know, this past year, man, uh, there is, it's such bad news for churches and Christian leaders. I'm not sure if you read about it, but I do all the time. And my wife reads about it because I send it to her all the time, going, can you believe this happened? And I just send it, and she, you know, it's discouraging. But, you know, like the SBC stuff, so discouraging. I, I read that list of all those pastors. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, that happened in a church? Uh, you, guys, you guys know Willow Creek? Like Willow Creek, if you ever, if you know Willow Creek, there's a movement called the Seeker Sensitive Movement, being missional. That was all from Willow Creek. They were like renowned church leaders, Bill Hybels. And Bill Hybels, if you look him up, he got fired. Or he resigned. No, sorry, he resigned because of inappropriate relationships with a woman. Multiple times. Hillsong. We sing their songs all the time. And now there's a documentary about Hillsong and the abuses that go there. Or if that, and when we think about those names, we go, well, Hillsong, they're kind of crazy, or they're out there. But even in our tribe, even the theologically reformed, there's stories all the time. Have you heard of the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Mark Driscoll? He was reformed, dude, reformed Baptist. He would affirm every part of our statement of faith. But he was a jerk. He just stomped on his people all the time. Ravi Zacharias. Dude, that guy was legit. He was somebody who I turned to for apologetics. He was somebody who's so smart, theologically sound. You find out later after he passes that he bought all these spas and he does all these sexual favors from these spas from different unsuspecting women that were there. And he told them this is his gift from God because he's been traveling and preaching everywhere. And this guy was legit theologically. And yet that's out there happening. Or even personally, people who I personally know, people who I listen to their preaching, crazy stuff happens to them. I know somebody, he was somebody in the East Coast, built one of the most amazing church ministries that all these pastors naturally would, naturally would fly and listen to him. Korean guy, so he's someone who's Asian, and we're like, oh, this guy, he made it as an immigrant. Later on, we found out for 20 years, he was hiding a sexual assault that he did with a woman in his congregation that he just hid, his, held, his elders hid. He counseled that sister who he sexually assaulted and convinced her that, it's, hey, it's in the past, we got forgiven by God, and he's still pastoring. He's still pastoring, not at his church, but other churches who just want a good guest speaker. He's still pastoring. I know a youth pastor, great revival speaker. He would preach revival. He was an amazing youth pastor. And I was like, wow, this girl, and I had a friend who was a sister. That was her youth pastor. Years later, I see him getting married to that youth girl, his youth student. They're married, and nobody talks about it. It's just like, congratulations, dude. I'm like, that's grooming. That's grooming. And yet I know them. And they're still pastoring. They're still pastoring. And here's the biggest problem with all this. As I share these stories, the most uncomfortable part isn't the stories. It's the fact that I'm talking about it. Because we live in a culture that says, just don't talk about that. It's uncomfortable. It's something that feels shameful. It's slander. How can you say that about stuff? Let's just not talk about it. And because we don't talk about it, there is no justice for it. There's no advocacy for it. We're all silent. And no one's aware that stuff like that happens until it happens to you. Until it happens to you. I like what one woman said on, a, on her social media platform. She said, quote, let me be clear, to out a predator publicly is not gossip. It's justice. It's protecting more people from being harmed. Brave disclosure is the very essence of God whose heart always bends to the vulnerable. To not speak up is sin. Let's flip the narrative, folks. Now, I'm not saying let's be watchdogs where we just cancel people and we have a blog of a blacklist of pastors. I'm not saying that at all. But let's be watchful. Let's not be silent when we see injustice taking place in our church, in the church that's there. 
We must be advocates in this church. But second response is this. In the midst of a world filled with unfaithful, false prophets out there, let us be a people who seeks out faithful prophets, true prophets. You know, one reason I think people get so spiritually jacked from faith from like these crazy, like charismatic pastors is because we love that stuff. We love charismatic personalities in America. We love clout. We love hyped up preaching. And this is why we're drawn to the hip churches. We're drawn to that type of preaching. We're drawn to like churches like on mission and so forth and let's do something crazy. But when is the last time I want to seek out a church that's filled with character? I want to go to a church that's faithful, that they're long lasting. This is true fruit. And that's why in 1 first, in first Timothy, Paul, when he describes what a church leader should look like, of the 12 qualifications of an elder, only one of them has to do with gifting. Is he able to teach? All the other 11, it's all character. Who are they? Who are they? I know I said a lot of bad news about all these messed up pastors that are out there. Uh, and it can be discouraging. Um, so I'm glad you're in my discouragement zone as well. Um, but just know there are a lot of good pastors out there. You just don't hear about them. There's a Twitter, I'm on, I was on Twitter, and there's a lady, she posted this on Twitter that caught my attention. It said, I think it's on the screen. She says, um, hey, Twitter people, tell me about a pastor who loved well, who shepherded humbly, empowered people, walked with them through doubt and trial, faithfully ministered in the word. Tell me about that person. She had thousands of replies. I, I didn't hear them. Well, all the pastors they mentioned, never heard of any of them. No one famous. It was all this small local church pastor who was with them. And none of them said, I love this guy because he made me move the city or he made me kind of change my life in this radical way. It was always, he just preached faithfully every week. I'm very thankful for that. This person checked in on me without anyone knowing that he checked in on me. This person just quietly and humbly led our small church. No visitors, but he just was there all the time. This person listened to my doubts without shaming me. And it really saved me. This person was there for me when I was sick. They brought me food. When I lost my loved ones, a mom, a spouse, this person cared for me. And this is, I think, what deep down inside a lot of us want to. That's what's the stuff that matters. And that's the stuff God, he actually is looking for amongst his shepherds. And the question is, do we look for that? Let us seek out true and faithful prophets and pastors in our lives. And lastly, let us remember the one and true faithful prophet. Uh, pastors are going to fail you all the time. Spiritual leaders are going to fail you. I'm probably going to fail you in different points of your life as well. But this is where it's good news, where it's not up to us to be the one you look towards for the main spiritual sustenance of your life. Jesus in John chapter 10, he says this, quote, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason why, you know, pastors out there and spiritual leaders can be whack is because they look whack next to Jesus. And the good news about that is that's because Jesus, he is the ultimate good shepherd. And he promises that he will be the one who shepherds after his people. He will gather the scattered and he will minister to our souls the way we need to be ministered to. And so as, we, as I invite the praise team up, I just want to conclude, just invite us to a word of prayer for different people out here. For some of you, one question we might need to ask is, who are the prophetic voices in your life? Who's shaping your reality? If you're a Christian, how present is Jesus' voice? Maybe that's something that we got to be discerning about a bit more in our lives. If you're a member of this church, one thing we might want to consider is what kind of leaders do we want in our church at Grace Hill? Let's be a community that raises up faithful 
faithful leaders here, praying for faithful leaders, whether it be yourself or others around you. And some of you here, some of you might be hurting. I know some of you come from backgrounds where, you know, that was a rough church experience. And that was really a rough, uh, couple of rough leaders that I was around. I feel like I'm almost scattered in my spiritual life. Pray that Jesus would really come to heal and to shepherd you during the season. Because he himself, he calls himself the good shepherd. So wherever you're at, if we could take a moment just to pray and to lift up just our burdens or struggles to the Lord, then I'll close this in prayer altogether. So let's take a moment to pause and to pray at this time.